0: Okay, guys, well, it is good to see everybody. It's always helpful to have some people to speak to when you're speaking. Um, It makes it easier. Well, last week, guys, we ended on verse 12. And verse 12 of James, James chapter 1, we're we're just reminding you, for those who haven't been here maybe, we're doing an overview of the book of James. And um, we have about two months left to get it all covered but I think, as I said before, it's going to take some discipline to uh, go fast enough and, and not get too bogged down on any particular issue. But by all means, if, if you have any questions or any, anything that would be edifying that you know about the text, by all means, raise your hand and, and speak up, um, because we definitely want to be edified and we want to be blessed by whatever you guys know as well. Um, but as I was saying, we ended up on verse 12 last week. Which, which basically is a good, a good verse to have ended on, being that verse 12 basically summarized everything we've looked at so far. So if any of you guys haven't um, made any of the classes so far, verse 12 was a good one to end on because it said this. It said, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. And that's what we've been looking at so far is persevering under trial knowing that God is bringing those trials to conform us to the image of Christ, to sanctify us, to perfect us, it says. And so that was, that's what we've been looking at so far, persevering under trials. And that's what we've been speaking of is these outward struggles of trials. But now in verse 13, James is now going to turn to, to the more specific inward conflicts of temptation. So we're going from trials to looking at the subject of temptations, and I'll just read verse 13. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. And so, as I said, James is shifting from trials to more specifically temptations. And these two things, trials and temptations, are very closely related. And I wanted to point out that, in fact, they're so closely related. If you'll look in your Bible, like, for instance, verse 2, when we first started off, consider it all joy. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, right? He's speaking of trials. And if you look at verse 12 that we ended off on, I just read it. It said, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, right? So that's why I was saying we've been looking at trials. But now in verse 13 it says, let no one say when he is tempted. But what's good to know about this, and it's going to be helpful for us, is to, is to realize this fact that it's the same Greek word that's translated in both of those instances. At one point it's translated trial, and now in our verse 13 it's the same word, but our, our translators have translated the word temptation for us. And I think it's, it's important to realize how close these things are how close trials and temptations can be as far as how they affect us. But it it is interesting to to see that it's actually the same word. And so it's the context of the way that James is using these words that is going to make the difference on how our English translations um, translate it. And so I think it is good that so far they've translated it trial. Because what we've been looking at, because I just want to clearly define these terms, trials are synonymous with test. Right, that's what we always talk about, like God's bringing these tests, these trials. He's trying to um, refine our faith, strengthen our faith, help us to practice endurance through trials. Right, so it's good that it was translated trials because clearly the context was speaking of these things. Um, so another, what's another example of a trial? Maybe um, your company sells out and you lose your job. Right, I think that's a good example of a trial. Because God may be doing that, um, like we said, to build your endurance, to build your faith in him. But, it, but in no way is that necessarily trying to lead you into a sin, right? There's no temptation necessarily that comes with losing your job. Um, it's more or less an outward hardship that you have to, to persevere through. So I'm just trying to make the distinction between what he's been speaking of, trials and temptations. And I think temptations, we're all pretty familiar with that word, right? Like temptation is more specifically speaking of a an allurement to sin, right? So we want to understand that distinction as we move through this text. Um, I think because even in spite that it's the same word being used, the context shows us because um, just look at the language there in verse 13. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for not God cannot be tempted by evil, right? So the fact that he brings in the sense of it being evil adds a whole other dimension than just a, just a trial that may not have any necessarily evil parts to it. Right, so so let's 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 go on in the text and I wanted to get back to the text because I think it's important to differentiate this thing because what I think James is, is trying to get us to realize is that we don't want to impugn God's holiness by um, by maybe putting putting our temptations onto him or 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 saying that he's the one who tempted us, right? That would be, he's guarding us from, from this thinking that maybe God is the one who brought this temptation to us, you know? Maybe it's not our fault, maybe it's God's fault. And so we, we don't want to do that. Um, and, and another reason maybe it's good to, to think about this is that I think many times as you read through your Bible, you know, you can be reading through your scriptures at the house of the family, and you can be coming across a lot of Old Testament texts specifically, I think, where it may seem as if God is maybe tempting someone. Right? There's many texts. I mean, I, James is going to, um, in Chapter 2, speak of the fact that God called Abraham to sacrifice his son. Right? That may be one where if you, if you stopped and thought about it, you would think, man, it sounds like God's asking Abraham to sin. Right? So I think it's very important to take all these things into consideration of, you know, the translation of this word, I think, is why they're helping us out here. Is Was God trying to get Abraham to sin? Was that God's intent? Or was it, was it a trial? Was he testing? Right? So I would, I would definitely translate the word test there. God was testing Abraham and not tempting him. God, first of all, knew what was going to happen, right? So he had a purpose behind it. But he was definitely trying to strengthen Abraham's faith in himself and his promises. And he was um, giving Abraham a chance to justify himself and justify his faith, as, as I think chapter 2 is going to speak of. And so, you know, as you guys may be studying through the text, and, and you, may, you may think, man, it seems as if God is tempting someone in this way. God is, God is trying to get this guy to sin, maybe, it seems like. You want to guard yourself from that, because I think that's James' intention here with this text, is, is let no one say that God is, is, is at fault for the temptation. So um, let's go on in the text here. I want to, I want to point something out, because um, it, it says, why shouldn't, we, why shouldn't we accuse God of being the source of our temptation? Well, the text here gives us a statement about God's nature, about God's very nature as the answer, and so verse 13 goes on to say. It says, "For God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone." So the fact that He says God cannot be tempted speaks to the, speaks to God's characteristics, speaks to the nature of who He is, and that it's not even possible for God to be tempted. And and what and what about God's nature would keep God from being able to be tempted? to keep him from being able to be lured into sin, well, I think it's just the, the absolute perfection of God, his, his, the complete nature of God in, in this, this triune fellowship where God has everything that he could ever want or need you know, in himself. God is completely self-satisfied, so there's no lesser pleasure or lesser distraction that could tempt God because God is perfectly content in, in, in everything that he is. In his own perfections. And so temptation is, is null and void when it comes to a perfect being, right? So it's impossible for God to sin. It's impossible for God to even be tempted to sin. And so at the end of the verse speaks to the fact that the result of God being this perfect being and not even being able to, to be tempted, it also goes on to say that he would not even then for, then for want to tempt anyone else, right? His being is perfection, is good. God's intention is not to tempt. So I think that's, that's the focus of what, what James is saying there, that we need to be very careful in our view of God, that we don't view him as someone that could even or would even want to tempt, right? Our God is perfectly good and perfectly holy. Okay, let's go on. In verse 14 and following, James is going to tell us if it's not God that's tempting us, Why, in fact, are we tempted? Where should the blame lie? In verse 14 it says, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. His own lust. And so James is saying don't look anywhere but ourselves. Right? We we cannot put the blame on anyone but ourselves when we get into temptations. Um, The word for lust there, right, is normally like a sexual connotation to it. But I think it speaks generally just of our desires, our sinful, specifically, desires. And this is what gives way to, this is what gives way to our temptations. And, and, and every commentator pointed out the fact here that it is interesting that, that James does not even mention Satan here, right, which is where most of us would like to run to shift the blame. If not God, well, then Satan's making us do it, right? Um, James got oblivious to Satan, and, and, and Satan is in Scripture called the tempter, Right, but the point of James writing what he's writing is so that we ourselves will accept full responsibility for our sins, and not even look to put it on anyone else, not even Satan. And so he says that the root of the problem is our sinful desires. And in the wording here, the next verse is very interesting. How James paints this picture. He says, "So, right, we, so our lusts." He, he uses the word lust is what it's translated. Our lusts is combined with temptation. Right, and look at the imagery that he goes on to use. It says, then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And so what, is Je- what does James say is born when our sinful desires, our sinful lusts are impregnated by temptation? What comes? What's the result of that, of that union there? Sin. Sin. Right, So it's a combination of what's already in us, our sinful desires, even without temptation, our sinful desires are there without the temptation. But when the temptation comes, he uses the language of it impregnates our our evil desires, and sin is born. And then it doesn't stop there. Look at what sin herself bears out. When she's mature herself, it says sin then gives birth to death. So I think what James is doing is he's really trying to sober up these churches and us as well to look at the seriousness of not just sin, but even to get more to the root of the issue is our sinful desires. Right? That's where it all starts. Before temptation even comes, there's an issue with our, with our sinful nature and our depravity. Right? James is trying to, to awaken us to, to our own depravity and to see the root of the problem. Right? because his whole point was not to put the blame on anyone else but ourselves. Right? So this is, what, this is what I have written here, and, 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 this might, and this might be helpful, I hope, but I think it might be a good exercise for our souls to think about the, the implications of what James is saying, because I know a lot of times we know when we sin, right? We're fully aware, we get convicted, the Scriptures have told us this or this is sin. Other people may tell us this or this is sin, but I think it can be helpful to try to get to the root of the issue, right, because if we're sinning, there's a reason for that. Temptation may have come, but the root of it was our own sinful desires, and these may, and, I, and I think for sure they are different for everyone. but it should be helpful to think about what sins do I normally fall into, and what is the root of the issue, what's the root of the problem? What desire is it that these temptations are, 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 are catching, right? You know, is it pride, is it the love of the world, love of money, whatever it is, you know, there is a root issue that's in you. And so I think by knowing what our, our temptations are and in our, in our, our lusts, we can put up those roadblocks that need to be there. You know, we can kind of head it off the pass, right? Because they're there, um, the temptations are going to come, but temptations we can also avoid if we know that, that we have lusts that, that get into those, Right. So it may, t- it may be going back to what Jesus says, you know, if your eye causes you to sin, cut it off. Right? He's probably speaking of the inward lusts that come in through the eyes. Yes, sir. Um,
1: I think um, if, uh, one's a comment, one's a question. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we use the Lord's Prayer as a framework for our prayer life, uh, lead us not into temptation, but mm-hmm. deliver us from evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's a twofold request there. Uh, one is that we don't be led that direction because God, in his decrees, uh, he does allow us to be tempted um, mm-hmm. with our lusts. Uh, the other one is like the evil part is the accomplishing of those lusts, bringing forth that sin, uh, just pleading with God to be spared from those those sins, I think is part of the framework of a good disciple uh, that, that prays that way. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, did you find anything like idiomatically or, or uh, the church background about that imagery of the impregnation? Um.
0: Not specifically. I mean, every commentator I read pointed out the he's more or less trying to use just a vivid, you know, picture, but I don't know of any connections to anything else offhand. Not, is that what you mean, like yeah, maybe a but, connection you know, to something else? it
1: seems like really strange. Language. Language. <laughs> yeah. It's James, of course, but mm-hmm. I, I just wonder if you came across anything.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so for me, I mean, what came to mind, and, you know, James wouldn't have had necessarily this in mind, but for me, I thought, I guess just with all the political things that have been going on here, I think here James is giving us the only biblical exception for abortion, right? And that's sin, to kill sin immediately, right? Because that's what he's warning us about is the seriousness of how this birthing effect goes on. And, of course, he's telling you if you don't kill it, the end is what? It'll kill you. The wages of sin is death. It'll kill you. So, you know, that's that's what came to my mind when I when I read through this is, you know, he's giving this birth, and you know, I have the birthing image in my mind of, you know, temptation, you know, and lust coming together. Now sin is here, and then sin gives birth to death. You know, at some point, you've got to kill it. You've got to kill one of those in that chain, because it is a chain. There's a direct link from our sinful lusts that are inside of us to death, you know. So I think it would be wise to keep in mind, and I think that's a great, that's a great example of something you can do functionally to, 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 take, to kill this chain, is to pray to the Lord, keep temptation from us, keep us from the evil one. Yeah, that would be a great way to to do that.
1: So be a boarding sin is what you're saying.
0: Be a boarding sin, exactly. Nothing wrong with that, Right. right? Okay, let's go on in the text, verse 16. James says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And so James is still in, the, still in the same subject of don't blame God for our temptations. What he's moving into now is saying that um, don't be deceived. Don't deceive yourself, right, because that's going to be the tendency when we sin is we've got to find blame for somebody. Some, somebody's got a cause. It can't be us. Um, don't deceive yourself. Don't be deceived by others. That our God is a good God. He's a loving God. And our God does not rain down temptations on us, but in fact it says that he rains down every perfect gift. That's what our God rains down. And so the the, the sovereign of all creation, our Lord and God, is not like, you know, just to use the imagery that James is using, he's not like the things that he's created. He's not like the sun and the moon that shift and change and bring shadows and, and vary with the seasons. right? Our God is not like this. He's speaking to the to the faithfulness, to the unchanging character of our God. And so our God is unchanging, he is faithful, and he is good, and he brings good gifts to his children. Even to the people who aren't his children, he gives them good gifts. And I think this is a great combination, it's a beautiful combination of who our God is. He's good and unchanging, right? So that's, James is just reminding us of the character of God. And so we shouldn't even be, lured into thinking that our God would be bringing about this evil that we commit. Um, And I thought just by way of reminder of some of the verses that we've looked at already, part of these good gifts would include the trials that we looked at earlier, right? Just because it's hard doesn't mean that it's not a good gift. God was bringing those for our sanctification, right? He calls us to have joy in the midst of those. And so just don't forget that, you know, The language of every good gift doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be easy, but it is good for us. God's God's working out all things for the good for those who love God and are called. Um, Okay, so let's look at verse 18, which I think James writes to give us an example of the greatest gift that God gives. He's been talking about the good gifts that God gives. Here's, Here's the greatest gift that God gives to us. In verse 18 it says, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of firstfruits among his creatures, right? So the, so the word for, for, for bringing, us, bringing us forth, is that, well, to what Josh was asking about earlier, it's actually the same word that, that he uses to say that sin brings forth death. It's a birthing language, right? So um, that's what he means there. He, he's speaking of, in the exercise of God's will, he births us. He births, he births us by the word of truth.
1: So, basically, he's not the Lord of temptation in bringing forth sin in the life of the believer. He's the Lord of us being born again to a new and living hope, the first fruits of, of the creation, if you would, of the new creation. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. So, every good and perfect gift he brings but sin brings
0: death. The
1: opposite.
0: <clears throat> yeah, that's exactly that's exactly what his point is. He's making a very strong contrast. Right? Sin brings, sin brings death. God brings the new life. Couldn't be any more um, polar opposite. Right? So, um, God in the exercise of his will gives us birth. It's speaking of regeneration, right? This new birth that we have. God says, you mu- Jesus Christ says, you must be born again. This is what this is what James is speaking of, you know, and, and, and I think that we're all familiar with this verse for one reason or another, but I think it definitely speaks to the, the, the issue of free will and who in fact has free will. God has free will. Mm-hmm. And when he exercises it, he brings us forth,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? Like Peter says, you know, he caused us to be born again, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, I think, I think that would be part of, of what James is teaching here as well. And, you know, I don't know anybody who's, who God has caused to be born again, you know, who has had a problem with it. You know, I'm most, I'm, I'm most thankful that God caused me to be born again. You know, it's a beautiful thing to have your heart changed, to, to hate God, to love God. Never, I would never complain about that. So I have no problem with God exercising his will to bring about the new birth. And how does God do it? What is the means by which God brings about the new birth in us? it says it's the word of truth. The word of truth. Paul, in Ephesians 1.13, he expounds in the same phrase, the word of truth, he he, he expounds and he says it's the gospel of our salvation. Right? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. You know, the gospel is the power of God and salvation. You know, we know this. That's why we preach the gospel. We know that's what God uses to save and change hearts. Right? So, um, here, James, Josh Josh mentioned it. Here James is giving us one of the reasons that James in these early scattered Christians, and us as well I think, a reason that he saved them so that they would be the first fruits of his creatures. That's the language that he uses which is, if you're familiar with like the old covenant, the the sacrificial system, the first fruits was the, the first offerings that you brought to the Lord right? And so a lot of commentators, well, they kind of go back and forth on, would this include us being part of these first fruits, or is he speaking in the sense of, it's the first, the first offerings that are given, the first sacrifices that are brought, you know, because um, Jesus is said to be like the first fruits of the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15. That would speak to his, his, his primacy in time as the first, you know, the first resurrected, glorified uh, man. Um, Stephanus is said to be the first fruits of the church of Corinth, meaning he was just the first saved in that church. So he's the first fruits. Right? So this probably means that that James is probably referring to these first saved Christians, these first New Covenant saved Christians that are the first fruits. The first ones that God has saved. And so that that's one of the, the purposes. God is God is doing a work for his own glory. He's saving people and that they will be uh, vessels of mercy that, that everyone will be able to see and, and glorify God in what He's done in his salvation. Um, James here, James here mentioned the word of truth, right? The, the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation. But now he's going to go on. So the rest of the text, James, James is expounding on this subject, the word of truth. right? I, I kind of just, well, Paul used the phrase to specifically mean the gospel of our salvation. But I think as we read on in James here through the end of the chapter, I don't think James is necessarily specifically meaning it just like the Gospel proclamation. When when James is using the language of the word of truth, the word, he says the law, the perfect law, he's going to call it. um, He's definitely meaning a a more fuller definition. He's not simply meaning the Gospel proclamation. He would be referring to um, studying the word, the preaching, the teaching of the word. But we'll see that in context as as we, as we read through. I just didn't want you to think it, it's only referring to when these people heard the gospel, right? But, so let's, let's look at verse 19. He says this. He says, This you know, referring to what, what we just discussed, God's salvation through the Word. He says, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And so James here is giving us very pointed, very clear instruction on how we are to receive the word, right? We're here at church. This is the perfect word for us, right? We've come here to receive the word. And so now James is going to give us some instruction on how that should be done. He says we're to be quick to hear the word, quick. I, he, he's, he's, he's really meaning that we should be ready and eager to hear the word. You know, hopefully some of you guys were speeding like I was to church today. Just, no, I'm just joking about that. But, that, but that's what he means. We should be eager, right? We should wake up on, on a Sunday being, thinking, man, we are blessed. We get to go sit in a comfortable room with air conditioning, have our Bibles open, hear the Bible taught, study, ask questions, whatever. I mean, this is, a, this is truly a blessing, right? And we should see it as that. And I, and I think that's obvious, right? God in his grace has given us a revelation. We should cherish it. Mm-hmm. right? But we all know many times we don't right? Sometimes it's just hard to come to church for whatever reasons. So we can appreciate this command of James, right? We should appreciate this. Um, now, now, here's a question. Here, here's, a, here's, here's, a, here's an odd point in this verse, but where does this warning about anger come into play? Why does James, because we can kind of imagine, be, be quick to hear, slow to speak, but when he speaks about the anger, this, this was kind of interesting for me to kind of study out, but the word isn't connotating like as the preacher's preaching to you, you're balling up your fist, you know, wanting to attack. It's speaking of more like an inward, um, the word could even be translated wrath or resentment that's inside of you as somebody's, as somebody's teaching or preaching, right? And so the question is, I mean, we all know what anger means, but why does James mention it here? Why is James talking to, telling people don't be angry as you're hearing the word? You know, And and I, and, and I know that we all feel that everyone wants to be heard, everyone wants to be the one speaking, right? Nobody wants to be the one spoken to, right? And so the only thing we, we have in context in the book of James is like James 3.1, right? Let not all be teachers. So why is James telling these people, hey, not all of you be teachers, right? Probably what was happening was everyone was wanting to speak, right? And, and, and we know from Corinth there was other issues where these early churches may not have been as structured as we are, right? Like, everybody knows whoever's got the pulpit, right? They they may not have had a pulpit in an early church. So it could have been almost like the tendency for everyone to want to speak up, right? And if you were not the teacher, there could definitely be a resentment that builds up inside of you. And so James may be trying to combat that, right? That could be what he's speaking of here. Um, The text says, slow to speak and slow to anger. And so I think it's just helpful for us, even in the church context, when we do speak, when we're, we, even when we're being slow to speak, we need to be speaking to edify and not simply to be heard, right? We, we shouldn't be speaking just to show each other how much we know, right? We, our motivation must be to edify. And I think another good thing to, 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 to think of, to have in the back of your mind is, and you should also be willing to be edified, right? If a brother's trying to show, share a passage with you, don't cut the brother off, you know. With, well, I think this passage over here speaks better to the issue, right? Allow yourself to be edified, right? And that's, that's what he's saying. You must be willing to be slow to speak, which means you've got to be willing to, to hear, right? We shouldn't be trying to one-up each other, you know. We're here for our edification, right? Verse 20, James says, For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God, right? So the desire to be the one spoken and not being the one spoken to, it can create a bitterness. And and the the text says an anger or a wrath or a jealousy. And that's only going to do what? It's only going to kill the work of the Spirit. Right? We should be receiving receiving the Word, right? If we're angry and and resentful, that's going to kill everything the Spirit is wanting to do for us to receive this Word. You know, so, again, to get to the root of it, We probably have our sinful desires, our sinful lusts inside of us, even coming to church to hear the word, that are going to hurt us, cause us to sin, cause us to be angry, that are going to kill the Spirit's work. And it's not going to achieve the righteousness of God. Right? So James, let's keep going. James further expounds on the receiving of the word. He's still talking about the same thing, how we're to receive this word. Verse 21, he says, Therefore putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Right? So that's kind of fitting in speaking with anger and these types of sins. Here he's describing these types of things as filthiness, as wickedness, and that's how we should see it, right, all sin. This This is good descriptions for us if we have a low view of these things. He says, but contrary to that, we should, we should receive the word in humility, which is just the opposite of everything that we've been speaking of. Right? And this, I'm going to read a quote just to help you, because he, he's saying, what does it say? Remaining things of wickedness. Like there's some things remaining in us. Right? These people are Christians. They're converted. But James is reminding them, cut off what's remaining. Keep, keep, keep killing sin that will be hindering you from hearing the word. This is what Curtis Vaughn, Curtis Vaughn, he wrote a commentary on the book of James, and in his commentary he's actually quoting another commentary, but I guess it was so good he wanted to include it in his. He said that there may be some wickedness remaining. It's like a bad hangover from your pre-conversion days, right? So there's this, this these hanging over just sinful sickness, filthiness that's remaining, right? That's, that's how he described it. Right? We, we all know that we weren't fully sanctified when we got saved, so there's things we still have to continue to fight, continue to, to kill off, even as we come to the Word. Right? So I, 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 had a, I had a chance here to open it up with this. Um, I think, so Josh named a very good one earlier, would be, and that was first on my list, pre-Bible study prayer. What are ways that we can, that we can actively prepare ourselves to hear the Word? Right, because that's what James is speaking of. He, you need to be in the, the correct mindset. You need to be in a humble mindset. You need to actively be killing things off to prepare yourself to hear the Word. Right, so I think that was a great one, and especially the, the specific example of the Lord's Prayer, keep us from temptation. Right, that, that's good. What else can anybody, I mean, does anybody have anything that they actively do, you know, that can help everybody else out, or do we just kind of show up hoping everything's going to work out? You know you know I, I, I thought that was i mean I thought that was really good and i and I think if we didn't have the constrictions of time like borrowing this church, we would be having the prayer time before right that was great that was it was really good to kind of humble yourself before the Lord, pray to him, ask him, bless this time coming up right that that was so so prayer is probably the best thing, right
1: I think a desire is just correcting motives i mean uh I mean we don't do the Lord's table every week, but just having correct motives, like, we, we need to hear the gospel, and we need to have our souls nourished. There's a mean of grace that, that is in the preaching of the word that we need to be seeking out. You know, the guys, we've been doing this uh, men's study thing, and just as a church, I think we just need to come to the Lord God. We are thirsty. We don't realize how thirsty we are, uh, because we've been dulled by the world by going through the motions, or whatever the case may be. We need to cry out to God to feed our souls. We need to have our souls open wide to the Lord to receive from Him from His table to feast upon His faithfulness, mm-hmm. to fe- feast upon His Word and His goodness, so that we can go out into the world and show our life. Mm-hmm. We can go out into the world and be like Christ and be Godly people. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a that's a strong petition. I encourage all of us right now. You know, be having a heart to have God raise our affections to really. We're here for Christ. We're not here for any other
0: reason. Mm-hmm. Kind of be humbled by, I mean, what do we have a whole week before we come here? Generally, where we're just being constantly humbled by our sin, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, don't forget that. You know, church is a nice day, right? Because there's no st- well, normally no stress. We got kids and stuff, but um, no, right? The stress from the week is normally work-related, maybe time constraints. We have all-day Sundays, so it's a lot easier just to feel, oh wow, that's gonna be a great day. Praise the Lord, right? But don't forget about all those shortcomings that that we need Christ for during the week, you know, wake up remembering that, you know, we're coming here for Christ. Yes, sir.
1: I was going to say, uh, there was that book that we had received, a free booklet, uh, like, I think last year, It's called Listen Up, mm-hmm. uh, just kind of, you know, encouraged uh, the congregation to really get into the text before Sunday, mm-hmm. that way, you know, I, I tried, you know, uh, keeping that up for a while, but that, that was a good time. Kind of. So when Sunday came and I was, you know, hearing the preaching on that, that portion, you know, I was just really engaged with it mentally.
0: That is, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a really good example. Right, John, you mentioned that, didn't you? Yes, yeah, maybe reading the Word, studying the Word before we even come to hear a preach would prepare us for for what we're about to hear and may help us be able to um, maybe apply it to ourselves even, you know, like start to think about how does this verse speak to me, you know, how's how's the preaching going to help me?
1: if, if, If I'm understanding the point you're making and everybody else, basically what you're saying is don't be a Sunday Christian. Right. You want to be a Christian every day. You want to take care of the the duties that you have on a daily basis and that that takes some time, some effort, some planning, uh, 'cause I know my, myself in today's world, if you wake up and you're not like kind of like playing out your day to at least a skeleton, the day's over and you're on to the next day and you didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. You never got anything accomplished. Mm-hmm. So I mean I think we're just saying don't be a Sunday Christian. Just be on your game all
0: the time. Yeah, just be on your game all the time and you'll be ready, right? Yeah, I think I think specifically for what James is speaking of, because he's speaking of the being slow slow to speak, quick to listen, he's speaking of like probably more um with the preaching and teaching of the Word, preparing yourself for the, that, receiving the Word, you know what he's talking about, which could even take place more generally at the house. You know, if you sit down on a, on a morning, you must always be prepared to... And so, yeah, we should be taking in the Word every day, not just on Sundays, right? So, yeah, it would carry over. So, yeah, just be ready. Be doers. Be doers of the Word. Be humble. Be ready to receive it. Check your motives, you know. The, other, the only other example I had here that I would mention is something that we do do, especially before our... our Two o'clock service is worship, right, through through singing. For me, that, that, that's a great way to prepare yourself to hear the word, right, because you're worshiping God, especially with a lot of the songs that I think that we sing, they're very God-glorifying. They put God up here, man down here, so we're ready. We're, we're where we should be so that God's going to speak to us, right? So worship, you know, family devotion, worship first, you know, with that type of thing would definitely help in preparing you, right? So the the verse ends, it says, and I've already mentioned, it says, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls, right? Let's go on just for for time's sake. It says, so now in verse 2, and and Josh just said it, but I think this is good because this could be the synopsis of the whole book. Mm -hmm. This is what James is saying. Verse 22, he says, But prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. That's what James is saying. Be doers of the word, not just hearers, or you're deluding yourself. And he's given us an illustration of that. He says, for if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of a person he was. Right, so... For us, to, to bring that home for us, I mean, it's a very pertinent command. I, I said this whole book of James would be good for churches like us who put a very high premium on preaching and teaching and, and theology and doctrine. James is saying be a doer of those things, right, not just a hearer or you're deceiving yourselves. And so here, this is a good example. This would be for us to walk into the service right now just to be, wow, Pastor Miller, that was a great exposition on, on this text here. Wow, I'm really, you know, I was, really, I was really impressed by the way you, you, you orientated all these things in the scriptures, right? But as we're driving home, we already forget what it even was that we just heard, right? So the text says that's, you're, you're deceiving yourself, self-deception, right? Um, and if Cassandra doesn't mind, I mean, I had an example, right? Because um, you had mentioned in small groups out during the week, you had thought, have joy, right, from the text that we had already looked at. And there's nothing better than to actually go to the Scriptures as your reminder, right, because that's what he's speaking of. When he's talking about the, the mirror here, right, Trish has the mirror of the law, right, you know, you're looking into God's Word as your mirror. If you can literally recall the Scriptures themselves, that's, that's, that's the goal right there. And so that's a beautiful thing to be able to do. And I think a lot of times we have, you know, maybe not the exact scripture, but we know what we should do and what we shouldn't do. But to have the actual scripture, that's a beautiful thing to be able to to call yourself to. Um, In verse 25 he says, But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides in it, not not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So it's not just the hearer, but it's the one that looks intently into the perfect law, right? And I think that's what we're doing on Sundays. I mean, we are literally looking into these texts, every single word, how they tie the grammar, how they tie into each other. We're peering into them deeply, and so I, I think we have a higher requirement to be more of a doer because we look into the word as we do, right? So he says that this is a perfect law, a complete law. Right? So I don't think he's nearly confining himself to the Old Testament when he talks about the completion of God's law, which just means God's word, and the psalm is always used synonymous with the word, the law. He's saying we have this complete law, and it's a law of liberty. Right? We're, not, we're not held down to a works-righteous system as the Old Covenant was. Right? We've seen in the fullness of Christ and his explanation of the law that these things is, is not a burden. Right? It's a privilege to serve our God. It's a privilege to keep his commandments. It's a privilege to be a Christian and glorify God before we do, right? So it doesn't, it's not a burden, it's a law of liberty, right? And so if we're going to be blessed, we're going to be doers of the word, as James says.